Today, in our study through the book of Acts, we finally come to the missionary journeys. This is really where phase three of that three-part strategy that Jesus gave his original disciples to bring the gospel that would first come to Jerusalem and then all of Judea and Samaria, and we saw that happen in spite of the resistance to go by those early disciples. Everything was so great being in community together in Jerusalem. It really took the persecution. It's as though God said to them, if you're not gonna go, I'm I'm gonna send you. I'm gonna get you out there. The persecution came and they were dispersed and throughout that whole region they brought the gospel. So the story of Acts is not just the acts of the apostles, but the acts of a sovereign and gracious God who pursues humanity with grace and forgiveness through the message of the cross. And we have seen the stage being set first through Peter's vision of the white sheet that came down, all that unclean food that as a Jewish man he would never touch, just in time to minister to Cornelius in spite of the first followers of Jesus' prejudices and blind spots because they were not only followers of Jesus, they were Jews faithful to the Old Testament. So what they saw as unclean, God said the cross is about making everything clean. And so he opened up their hearts. At least they were able to give permission. But what we learned as we went through the story was that they were not to be the ones to really fulfill the third stage. Sometimes those that God uses to begin something are not the ones to finish it. And there are actually going to be those that were there at the beginning who turn against what we're about to see. I don't like this. It was all real great when it was just us, but now, now unclean things are being called children of God, sons and daughters of God. And that happens still today. Those that start on a journey, they all have their, their assumptions, their pictures of what it's going to look like. Then as God starts working, they step back and go, this isn't what I thought it would be. And instead of responding to what God might be saying, new growth areas in their life, instead they choose to become entrenched and become opponents and to call what God is doing anathema, to call it not a work of God. They just weren't able to keep moving with God. And so it took God establishing another spiritual community in Antioch. Antioch is made out of Hellenistic Jews, not Hebraic Jews, which we've talked about in the past, and then a large group of Gentiles. They're the ones with the heart to see the gospel brought to the world. And that's where we pick up this story. We're going to go through two chapters to cover the whole first missionary journey. We're going to talk about how it came about, how the Holy Spirit called out Barnabas and Saul, and the emergence of Saul into Paul the apostle to the Gentiles, finally happens. It's been a decade in the making. He failed miserably his first attempt a decade ago, convincing arguments but not ministering with the Holy Spirit and with grace. And all that seasoning, we're gonna see Saul emerge and become Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Then we're gonna look at the apostle Paul's very first sermon recorded in scripture. And what you're gonna see is that the gospel that Paul preached was not his alone. One of the great arguments of secularists to a historic Christianity is this notion that the original followers of Jesus were far more Hebrew in their thinking 
And Paul took it and turned it into what we call the gospel today, that it wasn't really the original teaching of uh, the first followers of Jesus and of Jesus himself. But you see, people who make that argument are counting on the fact that you're not actually reading the story. (laughs) We know that's not true. And when you hear Paul's presentation of the gospel, you're gonna recognize it's the same gospel that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, same gospel that Stephen preached, the same thing that Jesus said was why he had come, what he came to do, and why he sent them out to bring that very message to the ends of the world. Uh, Years ago, in the same era, there was Dwight L. Moody and Charles Spurgeon serving on opposite sides of the Atlantic Ocean, Spurgeon in England, Moody in Chicago. In fact, Moody Bible Institute was one of the things he founded. He actually founded several institutions here in New England. Moody was a salesman turned evangelist. He was known to be the kind of guy that would go into a bar when Christians didn't go into bars. He'd pull people out and and get them saved. Shared a very simple gospel message that God used profoundly, but Moody was not a great intellectual. He was not a great theologian. But there was Charles Spurgeon, who was a man of deep intelligence and equal to Moody's passion. And his sermons today are still considered among the greatest sermons ever preached. No pastor has a competent library if he does not have Spurgeon's sermons in his library. And by the way, mine are there proudly displayed in my office where you to come in. (laughs) Great man. And both of them important because Spurgeon brought the depth of Scripture was able to give it theological credence by handling God's Word. That wasn't Moody's call. Moody's task was to preach the simple gospel message like a Billy Graham. Spurgeon was the one who brought the depth of it. In the New Testament, the book of Acts, that's Peter and Paul. Paul has a unique place. The reason why Paul could be used by God to write with such brilliance in the New Testament is because of his background, his training as a follower of Gamaliel and as a Pharisee. He knew God's word in and out. He had a doctorate in Old Testament theology. And when he came to Christ, God used all of that for his glory. Thank God he knows that we need everybody. We need everybody to do their part. We're gonna see how Paul now becomes the central character in the story and does his part. And we're going to hear his gospel. And then what we're going to do is look at how that ministry plays out in four of the cities that they go to. I think this is going to be extremely relevant to us because while the gospel message in each of those cities is the same, the accompanying ministries to that message varied as God worked through those early missionaries. Also, each city responded and presented a unique challenge to the gospel, which required them to then respond to that challenge. And ultimately, each of those cities has a different outcome in terms of what the result of the gospel was. So as we are here looking to see this year have us begin to reach out, we're really looking for God to do some powerful things in impacting this city. So we get to see some of the different ways cities react to the gospel. Scene by scene, city by city. There are unique challenges. Frankly, it's an eye-opener. 
Because when you bring the gospel, not only are lives changed, but the enemy always shows up. So that's what I want you to look for as we go through this. Let's begin chapter 13 of the book of Acts. Turn there with me. Take out your notes. This is very much going to be a point-by-point kind of a sermon today. And we'll just read the first few verses to begin with. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. And this is a very brief telling to set the stage for this missionary journey, but in it is a lot that we don't want to miss. And we see two primary things here. The first is how God and in what circumstances God speaks to us and directs us. I just want to list several things here that go against some modern ideas. The first thing we see here is that God speaks to them when they are in spiritual community. They are together. We've developed this idea that spirituality, whereas religion, the religion of Christianity, the duties of Christianity, worship and service, that's all a community thing, but spirituality is a private thing. When we want God to speak to us, we go to some cave someplace. (laughs) We go away, and all on our own, we can hear the still, small voice of God. Now, I believe God speaks to us privately, but that's not how God moves us in life, gives us a fresh vision, and confirms that vision. We need to be in spiritual community. That's where God meets us. They're in spiritual community, and individuals are serving as God gifted them. They're using their spiritual gifts. He notes two types of gifts, the prophets and the teachers. They're functioning as a body, gathered together in community. They're listening and hearing the word of God through those that are gifted to teach them, and that's where God speaks to them, in the hubbub of the body of Christ. When we're moving, it's just like an old truck without power steering. You can't turn the wheels an inch, the average person, when it's not moving, but get that thing going, and you can steer it. That's that's how God moves. He directs a moving active body and very often as we're in the middle of doing all the things we think we're called to do that's when God will show up in a fresh way and present a fresh vision they're also doing something very important they were worshiping and fasting let me just talk about those two expressions worshiping we're kind of familiar with And we think of worshiping as we try to do each morning, standing, singing, meditating on God, expressing praise to him. But worship in scripture is actually a heart response to who God is and what he has done that declares his worth in our life. That's about as good a single statement about what worship is as you'll ever hear. It's a reaching, it's an embracing of God of who he is in a way that's transformational in our life and that gives him glory, right? Worship is about embracing the person of God. Fasting is about releasing the things of the world. We like worshiping, 
But we don't do a lot of fasting. We don't like having to let go of other things in order to embrace God fully. And that's what fasting is. Too often we come to God with our hands loaded with all of our our things, all of our priorities, all the things that we like, and then we try to enfold him into it like the child that's holding all his teddy bears and he wants to be held by his mom and dad and he can't reach up to be held and hold on to his teddy bears. You see, there is ultimately no worship without sacrifice. Romans 12, Paul says, I beseech you, I implore you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your true spiritual worship. When we're loaded down with all our stuff and we're just trying to get God to bless those priorities, we are not open to hearing new things from God. But when we're letting go of things, when we're moving towards simplicity, when we're even intentionally having times where we're forgoing even the basic necessities of life, which is what a fast is, when we do that, we're letting go. And what that signifies to God is that there's space in our life for a new thing and for a fresh vision. I'm so desirous that we are there, that that's who we are. In community, Working, serving, growing together, reaching and embracing God, relinquishing the possession of the world, the claims the world has on us. And what happens? The Holy Spirit says to them, and a new thing has begun. Call out Barnabas and Saul. We don't know how the Holy Spirit spoke to them. We, we honestly don't. It could have been through one of the prophets. Or it could have been that deep-seated corporate conviction that settles in to a group of people as they're seeking God. How many of you have ever been a part of something like that where you're in prayer, you're in, you're in discussion, working through possibilities, and then an idea comes, maybe it's from one person, maybe it's from Scripture, and then there seems to be this gathering of focus, and together we affirm no voice of God breaking through, but clearly... God speaking to his people. That's how this church got started. Not because any of us, myself included, heard an audible voice or had an angel waking me up and whacking me on the side like happened to Peter in prison. As we were seeking God, the pieces began to fall together and there came a point where the 12 or so of us that were contemplating this came together and we all knew, we just knew we were committed to this and that it was more than a personal thing because it was outside of our experience and our comfort zones, but yet we knew God was drawing us to it. That could very well be what happened here. We just don't know, but we do know it's a specific call for Barnabas and Saul. I want to point out at this point that Barnabas is listed among the four or five leaders first, which probably indicates his prominence at this point, and Saul is listed last. With that in mind, we're just going to take a minute and look at the emergence of Saul into Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. I want to just take you through a survey of the language shifts that occur here. If you start in verse 1, you see Barnabas at the first of this list among these teachers and Saul at the last. Go down into the story. In fact, let's just read the story of what happens in Cyprus. Look with me at verse 4. 
The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John, which who is Mark, by the way, this is John Mark, was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, which, by the way, means son of Joseph. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joseph. Bar means son, so Joseph's son. Was that the Holy Spirit? No? That would be fine with me. Uh, Who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Pales. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul. That's the first thing I want you to see. At this point, what's it say? Barnabas and Saul. Circle that. Because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Here's how they respond, and this is big. Verse 9, circle this. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, and this is Luke's way of making the transition. From this moment on, Luke designates him as Paul. It's a very significant shift. You see, Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. So that's an important shift. Let's read on. Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. And immediately mist and darkness came over him. He groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Interesting. Wasn't that how Saul got saved? Didn't Saul go blind by a great light? When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Okay, here's what's significant here. Last time we saw Saul, he was debating vigorously and showing from Scripture and proving, winning his arguments, that Jesus was the Messiah. And he didn't bring anyone to Christ. He gets sent off. Best thing he could do is get out of the way so there'd be less controversy in Jerusalem and they experience a time of peace. That was his contribution. (laughs) To go away for 10 years, then Barnabas is the one that God uses to bring Saul to Antioch because the growth there is so explosive, they need a team of teachers. Up until this point, Saul is just part of that teaching team. And what happens here? What's the big difference? How does Saul become Paul? The power of the Holy Spirit in his life. He is now full of the Holy Spirit. It's the first time that's said of of Paul. Up until then, he was committed to Christ, but he was operating in the flesh. Now he's full of the Holy Spirit. And the reason why my first point about this transition is that he moves from teacher to apostle is because he immediately demonstrates the same manifestations of confirmation of apostolic authority that we saw in the early chapters with the other apostles. This is huge. He emerges with authority that, by the way, we never see in Barnabas' life. It's one of the reasons why Barnabas was able to make the shift because of this huge affirmation that this 
man that he's been mentoring, keeping on the team, developing, has suddenly emerged, and it's time for Barnabas to step on the side. So he goes from teacher to apostle. He goes from Saul to Paul. And what happens now in verse 13? From Paphos, Paul and his companions, circle that. So we go from Barnabas as the main teacher, Saul at the bottom, to Barnabas and Saul, to Saul, who by the way is Paul, to Paul and his companions, and then later on, verse 42, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, and that's the designation from this point on. So one of the really important things here is the emergence of Saul. God has pursued him. God has worked in his life, broken him, so that he can now fully surrender to God. No longer a young man. Now a seasoned man. Aware of his own faults. Aware of his own weaknesses. Now fully dependent on God. And God is able to move through him. The next city they come to is Pisidian Antioch. Not the same Antioch that they came from. This is an Antioch up near Asia. They go first to the synagogue, which is a strategy that we find out in Paul's own writing that God had given Paul to first go into the synagogues when he came to cities. The connection to the prophecies and the gospel was strongest with them. And if he could get them to convert, then the ability to reach out through them would be that much easier. So he went there first. And as is the case in a synagogue, when guests come, they're invited to speak, he begins by taking them through the history of the Jewish faith. Delivered from Egypt into the promised land, judges, then King Saul, then David. Now through David, God had promised a Messiah. We pick up the story at verse 23. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. As he promised before the coming of Jesus, John preached the repentance of baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So all the way from Israel's founding to the promised forerunner, John. Other than John being seen as the true forerunner, all that they know. They understand the promise of a Messiah. And now we move on. Verse 26. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they are now his witnesses to our people." We tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up 
Jesus. And now the conclusion. Jump down to verse 38. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. It's a beautiful, powerful sermon that takes into account the story of the people that he's speaking to, presents Jesus as the promised Messiah, his death on the cross, his resurrection, which makes possible the forgiveness of sins for all of us. He even does a little apologetics, going through the prophecies. We skip some of those things. And finally challenges them. This may sound unbelievable, but the prophets even saw that coming. And what's unbelievable, you need to believe. It's a very powerful sermon. And the essence of it is still what we preach today. And our faith, our believing in him, brings us not just forgiveness of sins, but justification, which is about our relationship with God restored. Sin had broken it, but justice is served, and we are restored to what God created us to be. It's the gospel. Now, let's just look quickly at these four cities and how they respond. I'm going to encourage you later on uh, today or maybe this week as you follow up to go through, read through these stories. I'm just going to summarize. The first city was Paphos. We've already read that story where the sorcerer had control. There is a ministry of proclaiming the word of God, this very same message, and they immediately face opposition. In this setting, the opposition are spiritual forces and strongholds. The sorcerer. This was the island of Cyprus, somewhat removed from the mainstream culture. More folk, more superstitious than the more enlightened folk on the continent. It's often in those places that you see Satan more overt in what he does, and that's what we see here. How do they respond to it? By directly confronting the enemy, rebuke him, and call down God's judgment. Sometimes it's that overt. Tommy has some very interesting stories, hopefully sometime soon I get to tell you about what it was like bringing the gospel into especially the rural areas in South Africa where Satan, through witch doctors, is very public and really does heal and do all sorts of stuff that we would think doesn't happen anymore in our more educated secular culture. There are settings where Satan's just going to be obvious and we're going to have to stand up and confront that directly. The result here is the conversion of the proconsul. That's all they really say. We don't know if others were saved, but that's one very influential and important person. Second city, they move up north into the continent and they come to Antioch. There they face two different types of opposition, religious and civil. Let's pick up at verse 42, just after the sermon. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. This is a revival-level response to the gospel. 
The whole city is abuzz, and they all show up a week later to hear what they're saying. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first, since you rejected it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. And then he quotes some scripture about that. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored that the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Two responses. One is the Jewish people who represent in our city the established religion, the established Christian faith. I don't don't mean to denigrate the whole Christian faith. We are part of the historic church but too many pieces of the church have drifted far from the gospel. So that now when the gospel is preached, they're not open to it. In fact, they're opposed to it. They call it exclusive, judgmental, not accurate. And at this point in Acts, that's Judaism. Judaism failed to recognize the Messiah. And whereas mere decades ago, they were the true religion, they are now a dead religion. See? When you bring the love of Christ, the true gospel message, into cities, even established churches that have abandoned that gospel will oppose you. That's a sad reality. And then those who are the social, the civil leaders in the town, they get involved and they literally expel them. They say, you're just not welcome here anymore. Leave. And that's why they shake the dust off their feet. That's what Jesus told them to do, by the way. But notice they never get angry and continue to preach the gospel. So what's the result? The whole city, here's the word of God. The word spread through the whole region, it says. And and this little phrase, all who were appointed to repentance believed. Just a little hint of the mystery of the sovereign work of God in all of this. And we won't spend a lot of time with that. But over and over again, you see this glimmer that God is at work reaching out, preparing cultures to receive the gospel. That's equally true here. God was at work before Paul and Barnabas came. And all those that God had appointed to salvation were saved. That's a mystery. I don't know exactly how that works. But we can trust him with it, the sovereign work of God. Two more cities. Uh, At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual to the Jewish synagogue. Verse 1, chapter 14. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there as a result, speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs. What was the opponent at Iconium? It was slander and ultimately, if we continue reading, physical threat. They actually threatened to stone them. They moved from Iconium to Lystra and eventually Derby, but Lystra is the city we're going to focus on. This is where there is a temple to Zeus or Hermes. 
the patron god. And one of the men that's looking at him intently as he preaches is lame. Paul feels compelled to heal him. So he calls him to stand up, and he's miraculously healed. The response of the citizens is to call Paul and Barnabas gods and to bring them out to make sacrifice to them. So what's the opposition here? In Lystra, the opposition is spiritual syncretism and superstition. They accept the gospel by enfolding it into their ideas. It's like when Jesus spoke in the parable about the seed and the sower. The seed that was planted and began to grow up, but then the weeds come up and enfold it and strangle it. Sometimes when the gospel's brought to a culture, it's superstitions, it's way of thinking, sometimes it's religious, sometimes it's social ideas in a more modern culture. Those ideas swallow up the purity of the gospel, and it can get lost in the midst of all that. That's what they face here. So it's interesting, you go to these different locations, not too far from each other, but in every city, there is a different type of battle that's waged. The first is overt spiritual warfare. The second is the religious establishment and social leaders whose standing in the city is threatened by this new message of grace and equality. The third is the slander, the the poisoning of people's minds against their character. They villainize the messenger and physical threats. And then finally, in Lystra, we see the threat of syncretism, spiritism, or just philosophy and worldviews, enfolding and suffocating the gospel, receiving it, but only as part of an established set of beliefs, and in doing so, killing it and destroying it. And then ultimately, there is one final threat that we see happening here, and I want you to see that with me. Verse 19, this is still in Lystra. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Okay, here's what's happened. The two towns where they had just been, where people opposed them, they actually now get organized and formally begin to campaign against this new Christianity. And that is the second threat in Lystra. It's organized opposition and physical persecution. The very cities where they had brought people to Christ now have gotten organized, and that's the group that ultimately comes and stones Paul, and the result of that is a miraculous deliverance. They're able to return back home and report all that God did. I think this is a fascinating thing for us to look at. Several things come up here. First of all, it's always the gospel that transforms lives. Sometimes the gospel produces a whole city turning back to God. Sometimes one person, right? Wherever God's at work, Satan is equally at work, and he shows up in different ways, but you can count on him showing up. So when we look at trying to reach this city, if you have this idealized idea in your mind that we are going to find the secret to not offend anybody, 
Now, we shouldn't be offensive, right? Sometimes people have to be saved from bad Christians. We shouldn't be offensive. But if we have this notion that we're going to find the secret, that everybody's going to hear it, is going to bless us for it, you'll never be able to be an effective bringer of the message. The next thing we see, besides the reality of opposition, is the response is always to be steadfast and firm and to continue to speak boldly. And then the promise is, God has those in every city that he's appointing, in whose lives he's working. The harvest is white. And even though we face opposition, there will be always great joy. This is how it concludes. Verse 26. From Italia they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. They didn't come back and go, well, how was it? Oh, it was tough. You name it, we faced it. There were demons. There were stones. There were big stones. They kicked us out of their cities. They didn't like us. It was rough. We need a break. Is that what they didn't know? What did they report? All that God did and how the gospel had been opened to the Gentiles. You see, they saw what God was doing and it was a source of great joy and steadfastness. And I want you to notice, they didn't say, let us tell you what we did. You wouldn't believe what Paul did. Oh yeah, that's what we're calling him now. Yeah, he's now Paul. And you wouldn't believe the lame guy he healed. It was amazing. Now, whose work were they bragging about? God's work. Ultimately, that's all we have when life is said and done. It's not about the size of your checking account, the personal influence that you have, the power or accolades you receive. Ultimately, the only thing that matters when all said and done is what did God do through you? That's what we glory in. And it's worth facing all the obstacles so that the world can know Him just like we do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we stand as your children. Some of us still as seekers, not really sure where we are with this. I pray for those that are here exploring Christ, what they felt is a conviction about who you are, a great love for you. And as we contemplate the challenge of bringing this message that we really believe is the message of life. Father, that's what my prayer is for those of us that are committed to the Journey Community Church, committed to reaching this city. Help us to have the steadfastness in spite of whatever obstacles may appear, and surely they will as we bring the gospel. And help us rejoice in the end for what you have done through us in this city. In Jesus' name, amen.